and welcome to the September edition of Data Monitor Healthcare's podcast. In this month's podcast, we will be highlighting and discussing the current dynamics and market outlook for cell and gene therapies, with a focus on the deals companies are making in the cell and gene therapy market, CAR-T therapies, and lastly, approved and pipeline assets outside of the oncology space. First off, I'd like to introduce Data Monitor Healthcare's Senior Oncology Analyst, David Dehan. Hi. And Sightlines Consultants, Amanda Miklas. Hi. And Sharda Millington. Hi. Now I'm, I'm going to turn things over to Amanda, who will walk us through some of the key company players in the cell and gene therapy market and their deal-making activities. Thanks, Ellie. Cell and gene therapy discovery and development has advanced through deal-making, and this is one of the key ways that novel technologies have accelerated. We've seen a wave of deal-making in the past decade in this sector, and that has really fueled development. Through partnerships, cell and gene therapy players have come together to pool their resources in a synergistic way, and that's also allowed bigger pharma companies to enter the field. Acquisitions have also enabled big pharma to build up even uh, bigger resources in cell and gene therapy. And another component of deal-making is the financing that newer plus more established companies raise to support their R&D efforts. As you mentioned, deal-making has been an important part of the cell and gene therapy field and has been an important contributor to how it's progressed. What are the deal-making trends that you've noticed recently? So as part of Sightline's partnership with the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy, or um, ASGCT, we highlight these deal-making trends every quarter. And for this report, our methodology also includes RNA therapy. So just a quick note that these are also included in the data, and collectively we refer to these therapies as advanced genetic therapies. In 2021, there were a total of 593 deals signed in the advanced genetic therapy market across alliances, acquisitions, and financings. And this was a 23% increase in volume over 2020's figures, which was a healthy increase. It was also more than double the amount of deals we saw in both 2018 and 2019, and we're seeing increases year on year, year on year in the number of deals. 2021 was really a standout year for partnerships and acquisition values, with several deals that were signed that were worth between $1 billion and $10 billion. In the largest of these deals, Danaher paid $9.6 billion for Aldevron, which manufactures plasma DNA and mRNA. In the biggest partnership of the year, Takeda agreed to work with Poseida Therapeutics on multiple genetic engineering platforms for up to eight gene therapies, focusing on developing non-viral in vivo gene therapies, including a hemophilia A program. Including the upfront payment, and if all other milestones are met on that deal, uh, that deal could be worth $3.6 billion. As you mentioned, we've seen an increasing trend in deals through 2021 and some really impressive collaborations and acquisitions in the billion dollar range. How is 2022 shaping up so far in terms of advanced therapy deal making? Uh, So going back to the, the historic trends data, the median total annual deal volume was 375 deals between 2018 and 2021. At the halfway point in 2022, so through the second quarter, there have been a total of 222 deals signed, which is only just over a third of 2021's full year total of 593 deals. 
So to at least match the 2021 figure, in 2022, we'd need to see another 371 deals. And the sector has also not yet reached that median value of 375, but that's not to say that it's not possible because oftentimes in general in the biopharma industry, we can see a flurry of deal making happening in the final quarter and even in the final month of the year. And through the first half of this year so far, we've continued to see really impressive deal values with partnerships and acquisitions focused in many different areas of advanced therapies, as well as different therapeutic areas and indications. What are the key themes around deal making that you've noticed so far in 2022? In 2022 to date, one of the themes that I've noticed is increased interest around gene editing with some of the highest value deals signed. In two deals each that were worth $1 billion, Bayer and Mammoth are evaluating CRISPR in vivo gene editing, while Pfizer and Beam are focused particularly on in vivo base editing, which is a type of CRISPR Cas9 genome editing where point mutations in DNA are introduced but without generating double-stranded breaks. And in fact, a milestone was just reached in this technology with Verve Therapeutics starting human testing of the first base editor aimed at the high cholesterol condition called heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. Novartis and Precision Biosciences have also put together a $2 billion agreement around in vivo gene editing. It's important to note that the advanced therapies that are part of these deals are not restricted to only oncology or rare diseases or rare types of cancers where we've traditionally seen a lot of deal-making activity. In the gene editing deals I just mentioned, the focuses there include liver-targeted diseases, musculoskeletal and CNS diseases, and hemoglobinopathies such as sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia. Outside of gene editing, we've also seen billion-dollar deals in traditional gene therapy or cell therapy. For example, in 2022, Bristol-Myers Squibb teamed up with Century Therapeutics to develop engineered natural killer cell and T-cell programs for hematological malignancies in solid tumors. And that deal is worth up to $3 billion. And Takeda could also pay up to $3 billion in its agreement with Code Biotherapeutics for their work on non-viral gene therapies for rare diseases. And in looking at the third quarter of this year, so far we've seen two big partnerships by Roche, which has been active in gene therapy for several years now, most notably through its acquisition of Spark Therapeutics in 2019 for $5 billion. In a mega deal that was worth up to $6 billion, Roche and Poseida are going to develop allogeneic CAR-T therapies directed to hematological malignancies. And Roche also did a $1 billion partnership with Avista to develop novel AAV gene therapies for ophthalmic diseases. Most recently, BMS signed a nearly $2 billion alliance with GentiBio around genetically modified T-cells or Tregs in irritable bowel disease. You previously talked about financing also being part of the deal-making ecosystem. What are the trends that you're seeing specifically in the financing of advanced therapy companies? One of the components that we closely analyze in our reporting with ASGCT is startup financing, which 
we consider to be seed rounds or series A rounds. These types of financings, particularly series A's, are the first time that emerging companies are raising substantial equity from venture investors. And tracking these can give us a way to take a pulse on new company creation in the cell and gene therapy field. Since 2018, we have seen the number of companies raising startup financing and the aggregate dollar amount raised increasing. The number of Series A or seed rounds by advanced genetic therapy companies doubled in volume from 2018 to 2021, going from 36 to 73 companies. And in 2021, total aggregate startup financing reached $3.3 billion, which was a 30% jump from 2020's $2.6 billion total. However, we have observed over time that the average Series A or seed round amount has been decreasing since 2019, going from a high of $69 million per round to $50 million per round in 2021. There are certain things to consider when looking at these averages. Uh, Firstly, they do take into account a broad range of individual financing amounts that uh, range from single-digit millions to triple-digit millions. So that can bring the averages down. And also, the averages include seed rounds, which generally are smaller and can also bring down the averages. And how have startup advanced therapy companies fared so far in 2022 with financing? So far in 2022, through the first half, there have been 32 advanced therapy companies that have brought in seed or Series A financings, uh, altogether totaling $1.3 billion. And that's about 40%, uh, plus or minus a few percentage points of 2021's dollar value, as well as the number of companies that raised startup financing last year. So I, I still think that that's still a healthy pace for 2022. And as you mentioned, there are a lot of novel technologies like in vivo gene editing that have been the focus of recent partnerships. Among the financings of startup companies, what advanced therapy technologies have you observed that are being funded at this very early stage? In the first half of 2022, we've seen a lot of interesting approaches in advanced therapies getting funded, including many Series A rounds that surpass $50 million and even exceed $100 million. The modalities and platforms for these leading startup financings range from allogeneic cell therapies to non-viral gene therapies or non-viral delivery of RNA, uh, including advanced manufacturing platforms and even protein splicing platforms for development of gene therapies. In the first quarter of this year, the largest financing came from a company called Selino Biotech, which raised $80 million in its Series A round. And Selino is enabling large-scale production of personalized cell therapies, including automated cell reprogramming, expansion, and differentiation in a closed cassette format. In the second quarter of 2022, we saw two startup rounds that were worth over $100 million each. The venture capital firm Polaris Partners led a $126 million financing for Tessa Therapeutics, which is working on an allogeneic CAR-T therapy targeting CD30. And then Satellite Bio announced that its combined seed and Series A financing totaled $110 million. 
Satellite has created the Satellite Adaptive Tissue Platform to convert any cell type to bioengineered, allogeneic, and implantable tissue. So there's so much innovation right now in the advanced genetic therapy field, and it's really encouraging to see that smaller biotech companies are being supported through partnerships and acquisitions by larger companies, including Big Pharma, and also getting financed from key venture capital investors. Thanks, Amanda. David, can you tell us a little about the gene therapy products currently on the market in the oncology space? Sure, Ellie. Uh, in terms of approved gene therapy products for the US market, we have several CAR-T products approved for hematologic cancers. These products are manufactured by first collecting the patient's own T-cells through leukophoresis. The isolated T-cells are then transduced in vitro with a gene encoding a chimeric antigen receptor or CAR. Um, that is the gene therapy part. Um, after expanding these modified T-cells, the patients undergo a lymphodepleting chemotherapy regimen and the patients receive a single infusion of CAR T-cells. The chimeric antigen receptor, or CAR, has an antigen recognition domain that targets the T-cells to the tumor, as well as domains for activating the T-cell about binding the target. The approved CAR T products target either CD19 for lymphoma indications or BCMA for multiple myeloma. Can you tell us a bit more about the CD19 targeting CAR T-cells? Uh, the major indication for the CD19-directed CAR T-cells is diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, or DLBCL. This is an aggressive lymphoma, and although 50 to 60% of patients can be cured with first-line therapy, the patients who relapse have a poor prognosis, especially the third-line patients. Uh, we now have three products approved for DLBCL, namely Gilead's Yescarta, Bristol-Myers Brianzi, and Novartis's Kimraya. These three received accelerated approval for third-line or later DLBCL starting in 2017. And with long-term follow-up, the consensus is that in this setting, a single infusion of CAR T-cells is curative in about 40% of patients, which is just fantastic concerning how dismal the prospects for these patients uh, were. All three products that had confirmatory phase three trials evaluating them for an earlier line of therapy, namely high-risk patients who were, who were refractory to first-line therapy or relapsed within 12 months and who are eligible for transplant. While Yescarta and Brianzi had positive phase three trial, Kimraya's trial failed to meet its primary endpoint. Um, there were previous indications that Kimraya was not as efficacious as Yescarta and Brianzi, and to some in the community, this failed phase three trial seemed to confirm this. Based on these phase three trials, Yescarta and Brianzi were approved this year for second-line DLBCL. Both the Yescarta and the Brianzi approval specify patients who are refractory to first-line therapy or relapse within 12 months, but the Brianzi label is wider as it also includes all second-line patients not eligible for transplants due to age or comorbidity. Are these CD19 CAR T cells approved for any other indications? Yes, uh, Kimraya's first approval back in 2017 was for pediatric and young adult relapsed refractory acute lymphocytic leukemia, or ALL, and it remains the only CAR-T approved for this setting. Gilead's Tecartis is a CD19-directed CAR-T approved for adult ALL, as well as for relapsed refractory mental cell lymphoma. And again, in those two settings, Tecartis is the only approved CAR-T. Finally, both the Escarta and Kimraya are approved for third-line follicular lymphoma, and we expect Brianzi to be approved uh, for this indication as well. Um, what kind of sales figures have been reported for these CAR-T products? Yes, Carta leads the pack with worldwide sales of 695 million for 2021, followed by Kimraya with sales of 587 million, Tecartis with sales of 136 million, and Brianzi with sales of 83 million. 
Brianzi lags behind the others because it was uh, first approved in February 2021, uh, but it, it combines good efficacy and an improved safety profile. And with the appro recent approval for second-line DLBCL, we expect strong growth for both uh, Yescarta and Brianzi. And can you tell us a bit more about the BCMA-directed CAR-T therapies? Sure. Um, there are currently two BCMA-directed therapies approved for multiple myeloma. Bristol-Myers Abecma approved in 2021, and J&J's Carvecti approved this year. These two are approved for fifth-line or later patients in the U.S. and fourth-line or later patients in the EU. And both are approved for heavily pretreated patients, and while both have reported impressive efficacy, Carvecti is generally regarded as beating Abecma on efficacy. The latest results report a two-year progression-free survival of 55% for Carvicti, while Abeka, with a median follow-up of 24.8 months, has reported a median progression-free survival of 8.6 months. Overall, we need longer follow-up data to see if there is a tail to these progression-free survival curves and signs of, of, of curative potential. In terms of what is next for these two therapies, uh, a confirmatory phase three trial is comparing abecma to standard regimens for third line or later multiple myeloma, and it was recently reported that it met its primary endpoint. Carvicti has a more ambitious program with three phase three trials. One is comparing Carvicti to standard of care regimens for second line or later patients, and results are expected next year. Uh, the two other phase three trials are looking at first-line patients with one trial evaluating Carvicti as maintenance therapy in patients not suited for transplant, and the other comparing a Darslik combination uh, followed by Carvicti to a Darslik combination followed by transplant. Um, so like in DLBCL, CAR-T therapy is being developed as an alternative to transplant. And um, what do you make of the safety and tolerability profile for these CAR-T therapies? All the CAR-Ts have black box warnings for cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity. In general, physicians are getting better at managing these side effects, but all the CAR-Ts are associated with REMS program, which require that they only be used by approved centers um, that are equipped to deal with these side effects. The KOLs we spoke to noted that CAR-T therapy um, is manageable in older patients, um, including patients in their 70s and even in their 80s, so there is not the sort of age cutoff that you get with transplant. And are there any other drawbacks to CAR-T therapy? Um, yeah, it is expensive, um, and the manufacturing process is slow and complicated. There has been talk about uh, difficulty in getting manufacturing slots, suggesting that, that just like everything else nowadays, uh, demand may be exceeding supply. Are there any other antigens being targeted for CAR-T therapy? Um, yes, but they are mostly in early stages of development. Um, Tessa Therapeutics is developing a CD30-directed CAR-T for Hodgkin's lymphoma, and has indicated they expect to initiate a pivotal phase three trial this year, uh, but I have not seen any that are currently in pivotal trials. What do you think is next for CAR-T therapy? There's been a lot of interest in allogeneic CAR-T therapies. So CAR-T therapies not prepared from patients' own T cells, but rather from donor cells that have been modified to avoid graft-versus-host disease. The main advantage with allogeneic CAR-T is that it would be available as an off-the-shelf product and won't have to be custom manufactured for each patient. This is especially important with the more aggressive diseases where patients are progressing quickly and cannot wait the three to four weeks for the CAR-T product to be manufactured. Allogene Therapeutics has indicated that they tend to start a pivotal trial very soon um, for allo 501 a and DLBCL, um, so we'll have to watch this one. Um, another interesting, albeit early, technology is CAR-T therapy based on gamma-delta T-cells. A major advantage of this technology is that the gamma-delta T-cell receptor does not recognize 
antigen in the context of MHC, which means that allogeneic cells can be used without any modifications and without the worry of graft versus host disease. At ASCO 2022, um, Adacid Bio presented promising phase one data in DLBCL for allogeneic gamma delta cells expressing CD19. Um, they said they expect to initiate a potentially pivotal study in the first half of 2023, um, so that is another one to watch. That's really promising. And are there any gene therapies approved in the US for solid tumors? Um, yes, but just one. Um, Amgen's Imligic is an oncolytic virus modified to express granulocyte macrophage colony stimulating factor and immune stimu stimulatory cytokine. Imligic was approved in 2015 for melanoma and has experienced only moderate uptake as a local treatment uh, of unresectable lesions in patients with melanoma recurrent after initial surgery. In general, CAR-T therapies have not proved successful in solid tumors, but there has been re some recent success with T-cells modified to express a T-cell receptor specific for a tumor antigen. Adaptimmune's Afami cell consists of autologous T-cells expressing a T-cell receptor engineered to recognize peptides uh, for melanoma-associated antigen bound to MHC. Um, a pivotal phase three trial reported an overall response rate of 34% in 47 patients with sarcoma. Based on this data, Adaptimmune plans to submit a BLA by the end of 2022. Some of the limitations of this technology is that it can only be used in patients with certain MHC alleles, and it can only be used in patients expressing melanoma-associated antigen. Although the particular allele is present in about 41% of patients, um, Adaptimmune estimates that only about 800 sarcoma patients would be eligible for a family cell every year. While a family cell was not active in other tumor types expressing melanoma-associated antigen, Adaptimmune is working on a next-generation therapy that uses autologous CD4 T-cells to express both the engineered T-cell receptor as well as a CD8 molecule. Um, Adaptimmune will present phase one results for this new therapy at ESMO 2022, um, showing activity in patients with esophageal cancer as well as ovarian cancer. And there is a phase two trial running for esophageal cancer and a phase two trial planned for uh, ovarian cancer. Um, so that is another one to watch. Thanks, David. Sharda, what does the non-oncology space look like at the moment for gene therapy? Uh, yeah, so as a wide overview, um, at the moment, neurological therapies are dominating the non-oncology gene therapy space, followed by elementary um, slash metabolic therapies um, and sensory therapies. And overall, just over 80% of pipeline therapies in this area um, are actually at the preclinical stage. On top of that, only nine products are approved and they are for a variety of neurological, blood, cardiovascular, elementary slash metabolic and sensory indications. When looking at the companies developing the drugs in the non-oncology gene therapy space, there's quite an even mix, um, particularly in the top 10 between big pharma such as Takeda, Roche, Bayer and smaller biotech companies who are a lot more specialised, um, such as Sangamo and Regenex Bio. So you mentioned the space is very preclinical heavy. Why is this, would you say? Yeah, so this seems to be a combination of things. So firstly, of course, there's a lot of interest in the space with a lot of companies investing in new development. It speaks a lot to the promise of the technology. Secondly, this early stage bottleneck isn't completely surprising when you consider the safety hurdles that have percolated the bill. Just to provide a bit of context, um, adeno-associated viral vectors or AAV vectors are often the vector of choice for gene therapies as they're generally considered to be uh, non-pathogenic and replication deficient, for example. 
Within that, so within AAV, there are several serotypes of AAV vectors. And about a year ago, the FDA held a cellular tissue and gene therapy advisory committee meeting uh, to discuss some of the safety concerns of these therapies and of these serotypes. One which is popularly used for CNS gene therapies, for example, is AAV9, which had several mentions in the meeting. It was linked to serious adverse events of hepatotoxicity, um, thrombotic microangiopathy and neurotoxicity, for example, dorsal root ganglion neuronal loss. We saw Pfizer struggle with safety concerns late last year when their phase three AAV9 Duchenne muscular dystrophy program, Fordadistrogene Mufaparvavec, where not only um, was a patient death reported in a phase one study, but three serious adverse events of muscle weakness were reported in a phase three clinical trial. Very recently, even earlier this month, two deaths were reported after treatment with Zolgensma, an AAV9 gene therapy for spinal muscular atrophy. Um, here, the patients died from acute liver failure, which it does have to be said was a known risk for the drug. AAV vectors do notoriously have a natural tropism for the liver, so liver side effects are a known concern. But naturally, reports of actual fatalities do reverberate through the field, um, again, as they did when Estellus reported four fatalities from their Aspero trial of their X-linked myotubular myopathy program, AT132, which is actually an AAV5 program. And here again, the deaths were also following some serious hepatic adverse events. But there do seem to have been a few approvals recently. This must be a good sign. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Um, the past couple of months, there have been quite a few exciting new approvals. In fact, there were three in the past two months or so. So firstly, in July, PTC's AAV2 gene therapy, Epstaza, was approved for AADC deficiency in the EU. This is actually notable in, in many regards, as it's not only the first disease modifying treatment for this indication, but it's also the first marketed gene therapy to be delivered by infusion directly into the brain. It involves stereotactic neurosurgery. And then in August, we had two further approvals of note. So firstly, Zintegla was approved for the treatment of beta thalassemia by the US FDA. This treatment is actually an example of an ex vivo lentiviral gene therapy and works through the genetic modification of a patient's own hematopoietic stem cells. And the approval was based on two open label single arm 24 month phase three trials, as well as a long term um, follow up study. And finally, there was the recent conditional marketing approval by the European Commission of Biomarin's Haemophilia A um, AAV5 gene therapy, Roctavian, which delivers a functional gene allowing patients to produce factor VIII without the need for continued haemophilia prophylaxis. So like you suggest, there's definitely positive developments in the area, and it's really exciting to be able to provide patients with an option that relieves a great deal of treatment burden. I would say, though, even the drugs from these recent approvals have come um, with their own challenges. So as I mentioned, the approval for Biomarion's Rotavian is actually a conditional marketing authorization. So this means further data is, in fact, still required to confirm that the benefits of this drug do still outweigh the risks. And this data will be produced, at least in part, from a global phase three um, study called Gene R81. And Biomarin have also hit some roadblocks getting this drug approved in the US. They were issued a complete response letter back in 2020 over concerns with durability, although now it looks like they're aiming to resubmit in September this year. The challenges for Zintegla have been quite particularly focused around pricing. 
last summer uh Bluebird via made the decision to wind down um, in and eventually completely withdraw from uh, the EU following difficulties they hit with regards to reimbursement, um, having set the price for the product in Europe at around $1.8 million. And this actually speaks to a wider topic of patient access to gene therapies, and they're notoriously expensive. So safety is one very important aspect. And then there's also access um, hurdles, even when you get to marketing. Are there any changes being made to mitigate these safety concerns? Definitely, yes. Um, And that's part of what's so exciting about this area. It's really evolving and there's a mixture of improvements which we're seeing being made. Starting with trial design, for instance, of course, as is quite commonplace in gene therapy trials, corticosteroid regimens are key, but also exclusion criteria can be very important in ensuring certain at-risk patients are excluded from the trial patient population. Um, A good example of this follows on from the serious adverse events I mentioned earlier from Pfizer's phase three Duchenne muscular dystrophy trial. So following these events, they actually updated the exclusion criteria of their study um, to ensure that patients with mutations in certain portions of certain genes, so mutations which would have put them in an at-risk category for certain adverse events, were now excluded from the trial. Importantly, however, we're also seeing advancements in technologies, so new techniques and platforms designed to improve upon the AAV vector designs used widely at the moment and increase not only targeting but also efficiencies of these vectors. Earlier this month, in fact, Bersent Ventures um, invested $30 million into vector biopharma, um, as we mentioned, um, which is a company Um, combining non-replicative high-capacity properties of adenoviral vectors with exogenous high-avidity adapter proteins, all with the aim of increasing safety, efficacy um, and specificity. Voyager um, Therapeutics also have their own platform of AAV vectors um, produced in their tracer screening platform, which is designed to select improved vectors with greater specificity and reduce risk of off-target effects when compared with conventional AAV. Uh, Interestingly, this company in particular has drawn quite a bit of attention from Big Pharma, announcing agreements with both Novartis back in March this year for neurological diseases and Pfizer at the end of last year for both neurologic and cardiovascular gene therapy program options. I think it's important to note that despite some of the concerns around the technology, AAVs are still considered to be one of the safest platforms to use, again, being non-pathogenic, replication deficient, etc. A good barometer to show the promise of the technology is in fact all the efforts made by companies such as Voyager and Vector um, to improve upon the AAV design and also the creation of the Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium, which keeps the promise of AAV in mind. So it's uh, made up of both industry and non-industry. So for example, FDA, NIH um, players, and essentially aims to gather a greater understanding of adeno-associated virus. So its use can be optimized, um, particularly for ultra rare diseases. Where does it look like this area is heading in the future? Well, typically we've seen gene therapies targeting monogenic rare diseases such as sickle cell anemia, but increasingly gene therapies are sort of escaping that box and the field is diversifying into more common indications or non-rare indications such as HIV, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. Just as an example, for instance, Lexeo Therapeutics announced um, Earlier this year, some positive initial data from an ongoing 
phase one slash two trial of their AAV based gene therapy, also known as LX1001, which is designed to deliver APOE2 into the CNS of APOE4 homozygous Alzheimer's disease patients. Not only was the drug generally well tolerated with no serious adverse events, but declines in cerebrospinal fluid key biomarkers relative to baseline were noted through the month 12 visit, as was expression of the protective APOE2 protein in the CSF in all evaluated patients with follow-up data at three months or longer. There are also a few companies looking into gene therapy approaches for HIV, uh, including Sangamo, Excision Biotherapeutics and CSL Limited, who all have phase two, phase one slash two HIV gene therapy programs in development. Not only is the gene therapy field diversifying outside of rare diseases, but I think the field is also stepping outside of classic gene therapy um, approaches. And as I mentioned earlier, gene editing is becoming a popular approach to tackling these genetic diseases. Again, as previously mentioned, um, recently, a couple of months ago, Verb announced they have dosed their first patient um, in a clinical trial for their Verb 101 program in heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. So Verve 101 is a gene editing program designed as a single course treatment that turns off um, PCSK9 gene in the liver. Again, this is a non-rare indication, which links back to how the field is evolving beyond rare disease applications. Also, actually, uh, the Sangamo and Excision Phase 2 or 1 slash 2 HIV gene therapies I mentioned are also examples of gene editing technologies. Uh, so Sangamo's is a CCR5 specific zinc finger nuclease uh, delivered to CD3 for um, positive hematopoietic stem cells. And Excision's is an AAV9 CRISPR-Cas9 dual guide RNA therapeutic. Intelia is also a forerunner in the gene editing space and has multiple CRISPR-Cas9 programs including NTLA-2001, um, which is in phase one for transthretin amyloidosis, um, and NTLA-2002, which is in phase two for hereditary angioedema. Uh, and actually, Intelia received a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in 2020 to conduct research on um, new low-cost capabilities for the in vivo functional cure of sickle cell and or durable suppression of HIV in developing countries, which also links back to what I mentioned earlier regarding the importance of gene therapy access and making sure we are able to actually get these therapies to the populations that need them. Thanks, Sharda. And that concludes our September edition of the podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening.